0: For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us, to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good, good deeds. These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Let's pray. Our Father in God, we are so grateful and thankful that you've given us the communion service to remember. Remember who we were, remember who we are, remember what you've done, remember what you will do. We thank you and praise you for the gift of music to be able to sing, not just with our voices, but from our hearts. Praise to your name as we have today in many ways related to the cross. We're thankful for the Word of God. We thank you that we have it and we can turn to it and we find in it not a message from men, not a message by man, but the very Word of God. And Father, it's our desire to study it and to understand it in its context and understand the message that you have given, not just for the folks at Crete, but for us who are living today. And I pray, Father, as we continue in our exposition of Titus that you'd use it in our lives, challenge us, each of us, from the word of God. You know where we're at. You know our thoughts are far off. You know the thoughts and intents of every heart in this room. And I pray that the spirit of God would have his way and use the word of God to help us to know you better and to help us, Father, to know what you expect and humbly repent where necessary. And to just rejoice and give praise for what you've done. So we commit the study of the word of God to you, thanking you in Jesus' name. Amen. We've entitled this morning's message, The Grace and Glory of God. Incentives to live godly are incentives to godly living, whichever way you might so choose to put the title. That I have given it. This text that is before us is not only in the heart of the book of Titus, there's only three chapters, and we're in chapter two, and it's in the center of it, but it is the heart of the book. Everything in this book centers around it. And in this passage, it centers around, in case you didn't notice it, the two appearances of Jesus Christ very clearly the structure is that way and the language of the passage is that way for example if you look in verse 11 it says for the grace of God has appeared and if you look in verse 13 looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and the whole passage is centered Around the epiphanies are the appearing of Jesus Christ in his first coming and in his second coming. And it is centered around an incentive to us, an incentive that Paul was giving to Titus for the people in Crete. Those appearances ought to mean something to us. Now, let me challenge us right away. You can be reading there in the text, but I want you to listen up. As we think about what we've just done this morning, and what we have celebrated, and what we have remembered, and as we think about the cross, as we reflect on the communion and what Christ has done for us, What does that mean to you? What does that mean to me? Is it just future? What do you mean, Pastor Dan? It's a ticket to heaven, right? It's a valuable possession. What it means is Christ came. I've trusted in Christ. I have the gift of eternal life. I, when I die, will be in the presence of God. Is that all it means to you? Is that all it means to us? You live, your 70, 80, maybe 90 years. And then all that that meant was he went to the cross so that I can be with him forever. By the way, that's significant enough, is it not? I think it is. But is that all it is intended to mean? So that you and I can have distinction with the relatives of ours who haven't come to Christ. Or we can have some distinction in some way to the life that we had. And now I'm a child of God. And, you know, someday I'm going to be in heaven and I'm going to see him face to face. And that's great. Or does it have any significance whatsoever to the present? It ought to. That's the whole point. It's the whole point of the book of Titus. It is the whole point of what Paul is writing to him about. He is not necessarily, though he will refer to the future, he is not concentrating on the future. He is using the past, and he is using the future as an incentive for the present. This is the time that you and I have. This is the time that God has called us, and he's using it as an incentive so that we live in the present, so that believers live in the present for the glory of God, and they live a holy life. It is godly living. That is the point of everything that we will say today and next week, and that is the point of what Paul is writing. If all it means to you is I can't wait and you want to get all wrapped up in eschatology and I can't wait till the Lord returns and that's and that's and you're living for the future you're missing it. If you're living in the past, we're celebrating our 50th anniversary of this church. We've been putting that in front of you constantly. And let me give you a little side trip to that by the way. If you're attending this church, and obviously you are today, on a regular basis, and you're not excited about buying a ticket for the 50th anniversary, something is wrong. And you say, well, it's the cost, Pastor Dan. Then you come and talk to the elders, and we'll help you out somehow. You should be so excited because God has called you to this work and this work is celebrating its 50th anniversary and you're a part of it. In my personal opinion, we shouldn't even be opening it up to the outside. The tickets should be gone. I believe that with all my heart. If you're a part of this work and haven't bought a ticket and that's not just a rebuke or whatever, it's a reality. This is where you are. This is where God has us. And as he's writing through Paul to Titus, he talks about these two comings of the Lord Jesus Christ. And obviously, as I've said, especially with communion, it's going to take two weeks to get through. That shouldn't surprise you anyway. And he talks about, first of all, the grace of God. That's how he starts. He's going to talk about the grace of God. Look, at for the, I'll come back to the word for in just a minute. But for the grace of God has appeared. The grace of God is an absolutely amazing thing that we take for granted. In Webster's dictionary, still today, it defines grace as the unmerited divine assistance. Now, that's interesting. Most dictionaries won't want to go that far, but Webster does. An unmerited divine assistance. He also defines it as special favor, To get up to date with the 21st century, Dictionary.com defines grace this way, favor, goodwill. I love this, and it's my favorite. It actually comes from Dictionary.com. A manifestation, I quote, a manifestation of favor, especially from a superior. I love that. A manifestation of favor, basically that's granted by someone that is superior to us. Vines, one of the sources for looking at the Greek, defines it as favorable regard. Dr. Zodiates, who's now with the Lord, new Greek well, source of many Greek study guides and aids for us defines grace this way favor or simply a kindness that is granted and others have had fun with acrostics and things of that nature when you talk about the grace of god and you've probably heard it's god's righteousness at christ's expense and we talk about these things but what it comes down to the key is this when you talk about grace It is not something we earn. It is not something we even desire. It is something that is given by somebody to us. And the grace of God is seen everywhere, every day, folks. It is seen in the creation around us, it is seen in the seasons that God provides for us, even those who don't like snow. It is provided and seen every day in the blessings that God gives us, even the very fact that we can be here, in the giving of life, in the very fact that God does not strike us dead every single day when we sin. And if he did, this auditorium would be empty and the pulpit would be empty. There would be none of us here. It is found just to help you to think about the grace of God in something that you and I take for granted that God has given us revelation, that He's chosen to give us His instruction, His letters, His guidance. You want to know how to be in heaven? He tells you. You want to know whether heaven is real? He tells you. You want to know whether hell is real? He'll tell you. You want to know how the world got here? You want to know what your purpose is in life? He's instructed you by his grace. You want to know how to function as a parent, as a child, as a spouse, as a worker? He's given us instruction. That is the grace of God to give us that information. And certainly, the grace of God is found in the sending. Not only his love, but his marvelous grace in sending his son and in the cross of Calvary. Go with me for just a second to Romans chapter 5. We were in that passage this morning. I thought it right to have that responsive reading. But in chapter 5, you've seen me and I've expounded on this a number of times. I want to highlight a couple of things of earlier in the chapter. You talk about Grace. Chapter 5, verse 6. For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the what? Ungodly. That's grace. Verse 8. But God demonstrates his own love. We still have that today. Where's the love of God? Look at everything that's going on. Look what just happened in Los Angeles. What are you blaming God for? He didn't have the gun in his hand. All the tragedies that happen in the world, people who have nothing to do with God, all day long and all year long, all of a sudden are ready to start blaming God for everything that went wrong. What you're looking at is man's sin. Where's God's love scene? It tells you. God demonstrated it. He didn't just talk about his love. He demonstrated it. And that while we were yet what? Sinners. Christ died for us. That's where it's seen. That's where it's demonstrated. It's seen. In chapter 6, or as he goes on in chapter 5 of Romans, as we just read, he says where sin abounded, grace did what? Help me much more abound. It didn't just abound. It abounded much greater, far greater than all our sin. Isn't that a great song? God's grace is far greater than all of our sin. It's magnificent, and we see the grace of God everywhere. God's grace shines when sin is present. It shined in Adam and Eve It shined in Jacob, who was a rascal. It shined in Peter when he denied him. It shined in Paul, who persecuted the church of Jesus Christ. And it shines in you and in me in taking us out of a life of sin, a life that was bound in bondage to sin, and calling us by the grace of God unto his side and giving us salvation. Because of this, throughout the ages, many have asked the question that's raised in chapter 6 of Romans, verse 1. What is it? Well, if God shines his grace in sin, maybe we should sin some more. And if you don't think that's the way the world is living today, and many Christians, and probably at times every one of us in this room, you are kidding yourself. We live sometimes as if the more I sin, praise the Lord, I got 1 John 1, 9, and his grace is going to shine forth. Did you read verse 2 of chapter 6 of Romans? God forbid. God forbid. It is with that concept of God's grace, understanding, That God's grace is abundant that it's undeserved that it's favor that's being shed that as Paul goes on and writes about God's grace he wants us to see that there is an incentive behind the grace of God and it is to fear God, it is to be thankful to God and it is to live for God and so he addresses the first appearance in verses 11 and 12 And you notice he starts off now, we come back to the beginning of the verse, with the word for. It's a simple word. What do you mean for? He's given you the reason. What do you mean the reason, Pastor Dan? He has just spent, and if you've been here with me, you've been through the agony and hopefully the encouragement of chapter 2, verses 1 through 10 already. What was it? He dealt with five, five categories of people. Who? Older men... Older women, younger women, younger men, and slaves in chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. That's who he's dealt with. And he's been talking about them, to them about how they are to live as a slave. How they are to live as an old man, as a young man, as an old woman, as a young woman. And he's been talking about them as to how they are to live. And he gives the reason Why should they live? Why should that bond slave not be arguing, be well-pleasing, not be stealing? Why should the older women be teaching the younger women? Why should the younger women be learning how to love their husbands and to love their children? Why should the older men not be a bunch of grumps, but start to teach and train? Why should that be? He tells you, for the grace of God has appeared. It is because of the grace of God. Remember, the way a person lives isn't just for heaven. This is for now. It is because of the grace of God in his first appearance that we should have the incentive right now to live for him. Remember, as he wrote this book, in chapter 1, look at verse 16. The sign of an unbeliever... The sign of false teaching was what? Their lives denied who God was. Look at it. They professed to know God. I would challenge this auditorium, challenge my own heart, and challenge all of Christianity professing today that a lot of professing Christians Christians are right here. What is it? They're not real. Why? Look at what he says. They profess to know God, but their deeds, in other words, their lives deny him. They're detestable. They're disobedient. And they're worthless from any good deed. There's no life. Oh, they talk about God. They love, especially when they're with Christians. They know how to talk when they're with Christians, and they know how to talk when they're elsewhere. There's no connection between theology and practice. That's what he's saying. And he's saying that those professions of faith, in reality, they are unbelievers. That's what he's been teaching. We've already been through this. Notice that the heart of the book, the whole point of the opening verse, go back to chapter 1, verse 1. Very important to what we're studying here. Chapter 1, verse 1. Look at it. This is how he opened the book. Paul A bondservant of God. Now, we've been through that, right? What is a bondservant? He belongs to God. You say, I trust in Christ. I just took of communion. What does that mean to you? You've been bought with a price. You're not your own. You belong to God. How many of us sometimes live as if, you know what, God, thank you so much for salvation. Glad you did it. Catch you in heaven. If that's the extent of your profession, you better be careful. You know why? Even the Lord himself said, examine yourself to see if you are in the faith. Because in that day, not a few, listen carefully, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, Haven't I done many things in your name? That's a professing believer. What is his response in Matthew 7? And I will say, depart from me. Where? Into everlasting destruction. I never knew you. What is the evidence? We talk about it. It's the fruit of the life. It's the life that's lived for God. It's not, I'll catch you in heaven. And the evidence that he's been talking about, look at it. A bond servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith, watch this, of the chosen. And then we get into our nice debates, right? Oh, we got to deal with election and free will of man. And I love to fight that one. And let's have some good fights about that. How about getting down to the practical? Let's look at the rest of the verse. Those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth, what does it say? Which is according to godliness. If you're a chosen one of God, my friend, that means you will live a godly life. That'll be your fruit. That'll be the evidence. He started the book that way. He ended chapter 1 with the evidence of those who don't know him. He's talked about these people. Don't just look at it and say, yeah, he talked about the older men, and uh, you know, then I didn't need that message from Pastor Dan. And he talked about the younger woman. Okay, that was good for me. Or he talked about the younger men. That's fine. And he talked about slaves, and that's got no relevance. What is it all about? The whole thing is about living for God, and that's how he starts off this chapter, this part of the chapter. Four, explanation. The reason is the grace of God that I've been talking about has appeared. It was in the first appearance. It's a past act. It happened when he came. It's God's unmerited favor. It's found in Romans chapter 5 that you read. What is it? It is a gift. And I don't want to overlook salvation this morning. We will deal at length with this passage between today and next Sunday. But I want you to catch that. The grace of God is found in the appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ, which was past. He's going to come in the future, yes, and we'll get there. But in the past, he came. Why? Just so that we could know historically a good man came into the world? No, that was God in the flesh. And I assure you today, if you're in this auditorium, and you have not put your faith in Jesus Christ, that you've missed the whole point of his first appearance. That grace of God was found because you are a sinner. You say, I don't even know who you are. How do you know that I'm a sinner? Your very thoughts betray you. God looks on the heart. We have hated people. We have been angry. We've committed murder in our heart. We've committed adultery in our heart. We've lied. We're all sinners and have come short of the glory of God. And God in his marvelous grace sent his son. Why? So that I could party. No. So that we could humble ourselves. Look to that cross of Calvary. And realize the wages of sin is death. We're all going to experience it. You're getting closer to your own death every day. Eternity is one breath away. You will not spend it in the presence of God Unless you've accepted his grace, believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, and been saved. Youngest and oldest in this room. And you can deceive people around you. And you can even be self-deceived, because the scripture speaks about that. But you will never deceive God. And if you haven't believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will spend eternity separated from him in the lake of fire. God's word assures us of that. But you can accept God's grace. He sent his son. He didn't just die on the cross. He did bear the penalty and price of our sin. Chris brought it up very well in 2nd Peter and 1st Peter 2, I'm sorry. He bore the penalty and price of our sin. And it is only through the appropriation of that he rose from the dead. Why? Victorious over the grave. Will there ever be a resurrection? You know, I haven't seen people come out of the graves. I've been to many grave sites. I've been uh, in all kinds of them, in all different states and parts of the world and visited burial grounds. I don't see anybody coming out of the grave. Listen, my friend, marvel not at this, that all who are in the graves will come forth some unto the resurrection of life and some unto the resurrection of damnation. Christ rose from the dead the third day according to the scriptures because there is no power in death over Christ. That was God in the flesh. And he rose victorious. And by believing on the Lord Jesus Christ, our sins can be forgiven and we can have the gift of eternal life. And unless you trust and appropriate that by faith, you are not a child of God. But if you are, now what? Just wait for him to come back? Is that it? No. That grace of God was designed, as we will see when we continue in this message, to cause us to live for Christ. And I want to challenge us as believers, those who partook of the communion this morning. Okay, we remembered him, but what does it mean? that communion ought to be an incentive that when we walk out these doors you know the reality of christianity you know what the reality was in the first in the i was going to say first corinthian church of the corinthian church first or second corinthian church you know what the reality was they professed to know god and they were fighting i'm after paul i'm after paulus there were divisions among them they were taking one another to court they were lying They were destructive to the body of Christ. And you know what's going on in Christianity today? I'm not talking about a magazine. The same thing. People who are professing Christ and looking forward to being with Christ for all eternity make no connection between that and sitting in a pew next to another believer and how we ought to behave toward one another. And how we ought to respect those who have been brought into the body of Christ. Be it the the arm, the leg, the eye, or the ear. We are all members one of another. And what happens is the same thing that happens in America. Who's destroying America? We are. Our sin is destroying us. Our turning away from God who is destroying us. What is hurting the church of Jesus Christ? We are because there's no connection between what Christ has done for me and what he wants me to do because of that, and that is to live a godly life. So we will look at these verses. The time is gone for this morning, but just let me give you, obviously, get yourself a little bit ahead. Verse verse 12, it instructs us. I'm not done with verse 11. That'll be next week. It instructs us to deny ungodliness, It instructs us to deny worldly desires. It instructs us to live sensibly, righteously, and godly now, in this present age. May God help us as we leave today, as we begin to get a feel for what's coming in these verses, and as we've observed this communion, to make a connection between our theology and profession of faith in Christ and our life. That we might be a shining light to a world that needs Christ. And as they look at us, as they hear us, as they see us, they want the Savior that we have because of our lives. Let's close in prayer. Our Father in God, we've just begun to look at these verses. And, but I thank you so much. I thank you for the songs that we sang together. Lord even in areas like that we have to be honest sometimes with our music we end up fighting over that and yet Lord what a joy it was to listen to the words to see the various gifts that you've given people even with instruments to be able to come to the body of Christ to be able to sing to be able to partake of communion to be reminded of what Christ has done for us, and the grace of God that you've shown to each one of us. Father, to have the privilege of being in this country and having the freedom to come to the building without feeling the pressure of persecution. And, Father, to have the honor to be called a child of God, to be a member of the body of Christ. And right in this audience, Father, to have the privilege of being Connected to many people in this room who I never knew before I came to Christ. And now to be part of the family of God. Oh, Father, help us as you continue to show your grace to us to make a connection to the reality of how we treat one another. Of how we're functioning in the body of Christ. That we might bring honor and glory to your name. No doubt, Father, in this audience, there are people that have heard the message of salvation over and over again. And you know their heart. Father, they've yet to come to Christ. And Father, my heart hurts over that. They need to see how much we do love them. They need to see how much you love them. Open up their hearts to the glorious gospel of Christ. That They might come to him to have new life, that they might experience in a spiritual way, the grace of God that they might trust in our Savior. We thank you for our time together today. Help us to walk out of here and live for the glory of God. For We pray it in Jesus' name.